0: I think it's a matter of missing the forest for the trees. I mean, we get so lost in details that we sometimes can't see the point. When I mention the book of Jonah, the first thing people think about is the whale. They want to know how is it that uh, that a man could be swallowed by a whale and then that he could live inside that fish for three days without being digested by the whale. It's a good question. For the record... um, Just last May, there was a guy off the coast in Provincetown, Massachusetts that was swallowed by a humpback whale, but he didn't stay in there for three days. He was in, in his words, maybe 30 to 40 seconds. But because he had scuba gear on, the whale could tell that there was something going on in his mouth. The guy said he shook his head, and then before long, he just sort of burped me out. He was free. But he didn't go into a city and preach. He ended up being taken by an ambulance to the hospital, and he's fine, so it I mean it can happen but but what is shocking is that Jonah stays in the belly for three days and three nights and is not killed or digested by the whale but 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 that is the details that don't Get stuck there. If you care about that, then you should look into it. It's a really good question. There might be some answers. But don't get stuck there because you can't think just because you have answered this thing scientifically that you've heard the message of Jonah because that's not the message of Jonah. Jonah is not about a whale. Jonah is about a man who is a type of man. It's about a guy who is a symbol of a tribe. People that were born like you and I, inside of a religion. People with strong moral convictions. We have a sense of what is right and wrong. There are clear boundaries between them. We have a sense that there is absolute truth and that God has revealed this truth and that the people of God that he has chosen for himself are in possession of this truth and that our responsibility to the world is to share this truth so that more people can follow God. It's about people with a strong sense of justice. Any kind of injustice, just they just recoil at it. And I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with these things. In fact, I myself was born and raised and am still a card-carrying member of the tribe of Jonah. But I am suggesting that there are unintended consequences to this. And the message of the book is to bring you face-to-face with those consequences. If you will let it, the story of Jonah will hit you with unrelenting force one chapter after another till you can hardly stand up. And it will force you to see how your faith can both free you and blind you at the same time. Your faith can be both good and bad for you. At the same time. It helps you to see. Why your witness is so offensive to the world. And it's not for the reason you think it is. If you've ever wondered how it is. That religion, faith. Even Christian faith. Church. Doctrine. Convictions which were designed to make people into saints, makes so many people into monsters. If you've wondered how good things like law, covenant, gospel, can become a problem even for God, Jonah will help you see that if you let him. Are you in? I'm going to tell two versions of it. The first version in about two minutes. Then the second version, I'll break the book down into a series of lessons that came out of it as I went through it this week. I'm going to come down here because um, these are hard to hear. I'm warning you right up front. These can be hard on us Religious people. Here's the short version. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, not a preacher, but the son of a preacher. Told him to get up and go to Nineveh and preach what the Lord told him to say. But Jonah refused to go. He instead got into a boat and headed in the opposite direction, not for Nineveh, but for Tarshish. So the Lord sent a strong wind on the sea to start tearing the boat apart. And the sailors that were in the boat took Jonah and they threw him overboard into the sea. And there, a great fish, maybe a whale, swallowed him. While he was in the whale's belly, he cried out to the Lord And the Lord had the whale cough him up onto dry ground. He washed himself off and went into the city of Nineveh and started to preach. On the first day, he preached the sermon, five words in Hebrew that went like this in English. Forty more days and the city of Nineveh will be wrecked. And lo and behold, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, these people with an international reputation for murder, violence, and rape listened. The people who hated Jews listened to a Jew and they declared a fast. And then when the king heard about it, he declared something like a national day of repentance And he called on the Ninevites to pray urgently to God. Didn't even know his name. Just pray to God and then turn from your evil ways. So they did and God noticed and then God changed his mind. And instead of destroying Nineveh, he actually had compassion on Nineveh. And now Jonah was confused. He left the city, went out into the desert in case God changed his mind. And he had an argument with God and it went something like this. I knew it. I knew it. I told you this before I left home. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, always ready to relent So now all of these Assyrians who commit these violent acts of evil get off scot-free. And if evil people get off scot-free, then there is no reason to do what is good. If evil is not punished, there is no reason to do what is good. And God felt sorry for Jonah. So he caused a vine to grow up next to him, fast, Just a couple of days, and this vine shed its leaves or branches over Jonah and provided wonderful shade from the scorching heat of the desert. The following day, the Lord sent a worm to chew into that vine, and when he did, he killed the vine, and the vine withered, and now Jonah was left scorching in the heat, facing the Sirocco winds of the desert, And he cried out to God a second time and said, I want to die. Kill me now. Now it was God who was momentarily confused. And he said to the prophet or the preacher, he said, Don't I have the right to be as protective of the Ninevites as you are protective of the vine. Did I not make them both? Yet, you want to kill the Ninevites and you want the vine to live. And the story ends with a question that God asks the preacher. It's just hanging there. And the question is, Should I not care about the people of that great city? Eugene Peterson's translation, I I like it a little better. He has God saying, Why can't I change what I feel about Nineveh? And this is where it occurs to you that the purpose of the story is not about the whale. The purpose... Of the story is to convince us that God wants to change his mind about evil people. Let those who have ears to hear hear what the Spirit says to the servant of God, the church. Because if you use Jonah as a metaphor for the servant of God, for the people of God, for the church of God, the story gets uncomfortable really fast. Still there? Now, can I summarize it? Fast. First, Lesson one, the call of God is like a continental divide. The moment you hear it, the rest of your life will flow in one of only two directions. It will either flow toward the call of God and it will get harder or it will flow away from the call of God and it will get easier for a while. Last week I talked about being near the Continental Divide in Colorado, a 740-mile ridge where when the rain falls on this really nondescript piece of land, the water flows either west towards the Pacific coast or it flows east toward the Mississippi River. The one thing it can't do is just sit there for long on the continental divide because from that point, about 10, sometimes 12,000 feet up, the mountains slope one direction or the other. The call of God is very much this way. It's what happened to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh and preach the message I told you to preach. And Nineveh is northeast of where Jonah is located. It's a city known as the Assyrian capital. And the Assyrians had a reputation for cruel and bloody torture. There are still to this day reliefs on the wall of Ashurbanipal's palace that show show, um, the victims of Assyrians being flayed alive, pulled in pieces by stakes, set on fire, fed to the wild beasts, We're not talking about ordinary people. The prophet Nahum called it a city of bloodshed and endless cruelty. Jonah is told to arise and go northeast into that city. But instead of going that way, he arose and went northwest into Tarshish, which is a good sized town and it's quiet. You can worship if you want, or you can just live off of the Christian ethic and be a private citizen. So the moment the call of God comes, the rest of your life either moves east or it moves west. The one thing it can't do is just sit there because when God puts a call on your life, You feel this voice inside of you that you can't articulate. It's not your voice. It says things to you that you would not say. And you will put it down. You will tell yourself, this is not rational. It's not logic. Educated people don't think this way. And you'll want to wait it out, but you can't wait it out because the voice will get stronger instead of weaker and you find yourself stuck on this call of God, it's like if you say yes, then the enemy won't leave you alone until you say no. But if you say no, then God won't leave you alone until you say yes, and the rest of your life is just being torn apart. That will happen. And it won't be the call. Quit blaming religion. It won't be the call. It will be the slope of your life. You are either sloped towards submission and obedience even in hard things or you are sloped towards self-reliance and self-invention self advancement it isn't the call it's the slope one thing you can't do you just sit there for long and just to be clear the call of god is almost never to a position It's a call to a function. The word of the Lord did not come to Jonah and say, go be a missionary. It came to Jonah and said, stand up in a hard place and tell them what I told you to say. Say it. I I, I think I need more. Say it. What I'm trying to say is it is entirely like God to call you into things you aren't passionate about, things you couldn't dream of doing on your own. It is like him to call you into that. I don't know why he keeps doing it. He just doesn't seem to figure it out that you're not passionate about that. And that moment... That season in your life will be a dividing line. If you say yes, it'll get harder for a while. And then God will join you in that struggle, people. And it will get better, hard but better. And if you say no, it'll be easy for a while. But there is a storm and a wind awaiting you you there lesson 2 if you decide to go to Nineveh you will have to go through a death and resurrection first Jonah He don't want to go, so he gets on a ship and starts sailing for Tarshish in the opposite direction, so the Lord sends a wind and a storm against the ship, not because of the bad guys, but because of the good guys, the servant. He's the reason for the storm, ain't the Assyrians, it's the servant. That's why there's a storm and there's a wind. So Yahweh sends this strong wind and the ship starts coming apart. Jonah has boarded the ship full of convictions, full of doctrines, full of preconceptions about how God works, about what is fair and unfair, about what is just and unjust, good and evil. Salvation works just like this. He gets on board and he promptly goes into the hull of the ship and he falls asleep. Now the storm is beating against the ship. The ship is coming apart. The sailors are doing everything they can. It says each one of them is crying out to their own God. (sighs) Let me get this right. The Midrash, which is the Jewish translation of the story, the Midrash says that the sailors in this story represent the nations, each nation crying out to their own God. So if that's right, what you've got is the servant of God in a ship with the nations, and the nations are crying out to their own gods, but the servant of God is sound asleep in the hull of the ship. hmm And the captain of the ship comes down into the hole and he wakes up the servant of God and he says, do you see what is happening? Call out to your God. Maybe he will spare us. Now there is irony in this. The nations are calling out to their different gods. The world is coming apart. And the church is asleep in the hull of the ship, such that the nations are coming back to the church, calling on us to cry out to our God. They don't even believe in our God. They just don't want to die. And they can't stop the madness. So they cast lots. And the lot falls on Jonah. So the sailors come to Jonah and they say, Who are you? Where are you from? Tell us what is happening. This is what they say. Can you tell us why this is happening to us? This is a remarkable statement. You've got pagan sailors with a deep sense that there is a supernatural force driving these things. Tell us why these things are happening to us and you've got the servant of God asleep in the hull of the ship waking up, saying something that the church would never say. He said... This is my fault. The storm didn't come because God is mad at you. It came because he's after me. Take me, he says, and throw me overboard. Translation... Sacrifice me, and the storm will die down. Well, they refuse to do it, they have this deep internal protection of life. You don't just kill people, which is remarkable among pagans. But the storm grows wilder and wilder. And so they finally walk Jonah over to the edge of the ship. And then for the first time in the story, they call out not to God, but to Yahweh. They use his name. They call him by name. You got the nations calling on the name of Yahweh. And they say, do not hold the life of this innocent man against us, you have done as you pleased. And they throw him overboard. Instantly, the storm subsides. And Jonah is swallowed. Can I pause for a minute? All right? Because you guys... Nobody in this story is acting according to script. You've got the good guys, the servant of God, running away from Yahweh. And you've got the bad guys, the nations, calling out on his name. You've got the good guys sleeping in the midst of a storm. And you've got the bad guys just trying to hold things together. And you can say what you want about those people who pray to foreign gods, but at least they're praying. And you can't deny the storm was sent for the good guys. And there's one more thing. The whale ate. The good guys. What you going to do with that? He didn't eat the Assyrians. He didn't eat the Ninevites. He didn't eat the Muslims. He didn't eat the Hindus. He didn't eat all those other religions. He ate us. He didn't eat any of these tribes that evangelicals get riled up over. He ate us. And the word in the Hebrew is he was appointed, provided. The word means assigned and prepared. The whale was assigned and prepared By Yahweh to eat the servant, not the sailors. Is this a problem for anyone else? So this time in the story, you're feeling what I felt right about Tuesday. I shut the door and I start thinking... um, is God trying to say that he is angry? has God turned his back um, what have we done and And then I keep reading, and once he's in the belly of the whale, Jonah starts praying, and it gets interesting, you guys. His prayer is not one of self-defense. It's one of self-abandonment. He's not protesting that this is unfair. He's saying... I have fallen into your hands, O God. You will do with me whatever you want. And he's using language for death in the grave. He's saying, you will snatch me up out of the pit. And the Hebrew word literally means grave. He sees this as something of a death explains why in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11 Jesus uses this story as a parallel to his own death and resurrection he says as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights so will the son of man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights starts to occur to you this is not a punishment the whale is not a punishment. The whale is a preparation for your ministry in Nineveh. And you can't go to hard places being the kind of person you are right now. Something in you has got to die so something else that is bigger can be born. And that is the thing that God will use in Nineveh. So if you decide to go into the Ninevehs of your world, there will have to be a death and a resurrection. Your preconceived ideas about good and evil and the world in binary terms, your assumption that you know full well who God is, even though Paul says his ways are unsearchable, his judgments are past finding out. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more you nail all of that stuff down. And a a lot of that stuff has got to die not because it's wrong but because it doesn't work in Nineveh. They don't care how nicely you've got everything explained they don't care. They just want their lives to work. They want the ship to stop coming apart. Our evangelical privilege that says we are chosen by God, entrusted with a bunch of absolute truths, charged with the duty of sharing these truths boldly to the world. Some of that got to die. Not because it ain't true, but because it doesn't listen. It's cocky. It's too cocky. To work in a ship that is coming apart. In a culture where people just want to live. Just tell me how to live. I'll believe anything. Just tell me how to live. Are you still there? So you go from believing 50 things to believing a handful of things, but you believe them even more. And they become simpler for you. And they become more flexible. They move in and out of every culture. But they're not demanding. They're not self confident and self assured. And they're not controlling or dogmatic. They're sensitive. They're empathic. They listen. They bleed. They say nothing when there is nothing to say. We got to die so that something more humble and beautiful and life giving and compassionate can be born. How are you doing? All right, really fast. I won't belabor these points. The third lesson is that by the time you get to Nineveh, you will discover that God is already there. Oh, what strikes me is the disproportionate response to a sermon that was so bad. 40 more days, and you guys are toast. The end. That ain't redemptive. There's no evidence that it's true. There's no body of work, no proof of concept. He just gets up and says, 40 more days, and you guys are fried. And he sits down, and they give the benediction. And instead of killing them, the people start dressing in sackcloth, and they start mourning, and the preachers thinking, no, no, you can't do this. And then the king finds out, and he says, it's got to be a day of repentance, and he has the city calling out to God, and he has people turning from their wicked ways, And I'm reading this thinking, how can such a momentous response come from such a, I'm sorry, pitiful sermon? And the only thing I think of is that God was already there first. Vincent Donovan, a priest, went to the people of Messiah, never heard of God, yours He said, we must share the gospel to the nation in whom resides already the possibility of salvation. That is, that God has already put in the tribes and in the nations the customs and traditions that they themselves will use as the first steps toward salvation. Our role is not to destroy a culture or to replace it. It is to bear faithful witness to the God-man born in Bethlehem, raised in Golgotha. Full stop. And if we do this, we must never underestimate what God has already done. We cannot predict how successful or unsuccessful our obedience will be. We have nothing to do with the afterword of obedience. Nothing. We don't weigh pros and cons. We don't try to project. We just say, what does God ask me to say? And we say it. And God will be active in places where the servant is obedient in the fourth Last lesson As good as they are, your beliefs will sometimes hide you like nothing else from the face of God. Last week I talked about the difference, or two weeks ago I talked about the difference between faith and belief. Faith is a personal encounter with the living one who reveals himself to you in a moment you will never forget. Beliefs are the language you put to that. It's the way you try to explain it or make sense of it or to promote it with people who haven't had that encounter. Faith is like the tower and beliefs are like the scaffolding that you put around the tower. But the longer you've been a Christian, it's harder to tell what is scaffolding and what is still the tower. And there are times when there is so much scaffolding, you can't see the tower anymore. The belief has been lost in a gauntlet of convictions and doctrines, explanations, cliches, answers, preconceptions. It just vanishes. And in an odd way, all of these things that you built up to strengthen your faith in God ends up hiding you the face of God such that when he speaks to you, Christian you run to one of those beliefs and you hide and nothing will hide you like your beliefs so the story of Jonah ends with the prophet or the preacher and his God on opposite sides of an argument. And the argument is over justice. And the funny thing is, if you'd interview Jonah, he'd swear up and down he got his sense of justice from God. And now, he finds himself crossways with the God of his convictions. He reminds me a little bit of the prodigal son. Starting to think if Jonah is the story of the prodigal son in the Old Testament. He's like the elder son who stays out in the field. He's loyal, faithful to his God. But at the same time, he is far removed from the heart of God. He can't understand why all of the noise in heaven is for the Ninevites who just slaughtered people. And now they're, what, forgiven? And you just, what, walk away? Ain't nobody going to pay for this? Is it just me or have you at one time or another felt yourself feeling the same way about the Ninevites that are alive today? You're all right with grace as long as they get theirs. And here you have God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, giving grace to you. And here you, like Jonah, deny grace to others while you yourself have lived off it. You see it? And in an odd way, um, there is no one further from the heart of God. So here, here is, um, I'm gonna try to wrap this here with this. I, I think I hear a message here for different types of people in the room right now. I'm going to ask you in a moment to just stand with me on the floor. I want to pray with you. The first kind of person I think that this message speaks to is those of us that right now have heard God call us to do something hard that we're not passionate about and we're not good at it either and yet we've been struggling or fighting this call of God to go do this thing. You're going to postpone it. You're going to reason it away. But trust me, it won't go away. And your life will get harder if you do it but better in the end. I have hidden behind the call to be a minister like some of you hide behind the call to be a professor or a missionary you think I've answered the call I'm christian no no this is not a call into a position this is a call to a function There is a time and for some of you it's now where you know full well what God is asking you to do and it's hard and it's a function and you can't do it. But you can't not do it. Would you bow your heads? If I have just described you or gotten close, would you join me by standing to the floor? I I want to pray for you with you, alongside you in a moment. Then I hear a message in here for some uh, who right now feel that God has abandoned them or really uh, uh, put them in a hard spot. You're wondering if he's mad at you. Is this a punishment? And what I want you to hear is, no, God is preparing you to do the thing he has called you to do. But there must be a death before you can rise again. You can go, but not like this. There must be a death and resurrection. If you have heard something like that in the last few moments would you be courageous enough to stand and say, yeah, I'm in that place right now. Join me by standing. Uh, There are some of you already in hard places and you feel as if the burden is all upon you. You got to say it better. You got to get more degrees. You've got to be brighter, more clever, And what you're hearing the Lord say this morning is, No, I'm already there. (laughs) Can you not see it? I'm working among the people that you want so much to be saved. I want this too. Trust me. You can trust me. If that's what you hear God saying, would you be strong enough to stand? Last, am I speaking to anyone with clear sense of justice? Good and evil, right and wrong, fair and unfair. And you struggle with people who get away with too much. There never seems to be a judgment day for them and you've talked to God about this and complained, but that was a while ago. Now you've just gone quiet and it eats at you. And I think what you've heard God say this morning is why can't I change what I feel for those people? If I've described you Would you join me by standing to the floor? Now, Father, it is into your hands and into your care I give those that have stood with me We repent of our self assurance. We repent of beliefs that, while true, have gone cold. They've become weapons, they're walls. They are not fortresses anymore. Now, Father, we don't want to put them down, but we're afraid of them. This faith that frees us and blinds us, hurts that we're afraid of it. Would you strengthen us now with people, with places, with words from your scriptures that bring life to your people again so that When we go, it's not as preachers who are self-assured, but as travelers in the same journey. Find us both there, us and the people that we want to reach. In Jesus' powerful name.